Amen. Amen. So, yeah, my wife, who was with me the first 15 years we were on the road, 18 if you count in the three years of PBI, uh, she came off the road last fall, and she's needing to be in one place for a while, and it seems to be helping quite a bit. So she is a watercolor artist, and the Lord has given her a, a burden of uh, a scripture greeting card ministry that she actually started while we were at PBI. And we would like every person, every family here to take two of these greeting cards. They're absolutely free. They're our gift to you. My wife does all this artwork. Uh, it's King James through and through, front, middle, and back. And uh, she's also combined the message with a hymn, one of the old-time hymns, probably the powerful words from that hymn inside. So there's birthday cards, uh, Christmas cards, thank you, all kinds of different uh, things. The gospel, there's a personal note from the artist on the back, and within that note is the plan of salvation. That's the main purpose of the card. So please be a part of that ministry. We will provide the envelope and the card, and you can put on the stamp or just pray about it and hand it to somebody, okay? So um, last year at this time, uh, we were out in the, well, we were just finishing a, a long spring and summer and part of the fall out in the great northwest of this country. And it was while we were out there, um, we heard about this little girl. Um, I know she was seven years old, so she must have been in uh, probably second grade. And uh, something was, they were talking about, and she's in the public school system. There's something going on in their classroom, and the teacher just kind of offhandedly mentioned, you know, that thing about Jonah? The teacher said, that didn't really happen. And this little girl said, teacher, teacher, uh, no, that did happen. That's real. And the teacher said, I'm sorry, dear, but uh, scientists have proven, this is science falsely so-called, by the way, scientists have proven that uh, a whale could not swallow a, an adult human being. And so there you have it. Teacher, teacher, uh, I know it's true because I read it in my Bible. And, of course, the teacher won't let it go. She says, listen, neither one of us was there. So we'll just have to agree to disagree. Teacher, teacher, I'm just going to ask Jonah when I get to heaven. To which the teacher responds, well, what if Jonah's not in heaven? And then she says, well, then you ask him. <laughs> now, some of you are wondering why I added this. This is called a thumb rest to this picture. And uh, I think it's just kind of old-timey. And when I do something special, like a pitcher, it could be a mug, teapot, something like that, I usually put that thumb rest on there. Of course, the real reason is because it adds $10 to the price. So, truth be told. Okay, if you weren't here, we're going to go quickly. By the way, I didn't mention this verse, First Thessalonians 4.3. This is the will of God, even your sanctification. All right? The verses I was reaching for, I couldn't remember, you know, Twice the Apostle Paul told Timothy, lay hold on eternal life. He's not talking about, you know, Timothy was saved and all that. He's telling him, hey, take advantage of the fact that you have eternal life. Laying hold on eternal life is making the most of your days of your salvation. And, and, and that's how you get that true satisfaction, contentment, fulfillment, and all of that, that all of us are seeking for. And you get it when you actually surrender to God's good, acceptable, and perfect will and allow him to do those things through you, that's what really brings us the pleasure that we were created to bring him. So we talked about um, we're made out of clay. Clay has inherently no value, but if God takes possession of that clay, he can turn our clay vessel into something. We talked about the fact that God wants to give us not only those half a dozen things that we get with salvation, but he wants to give us things things above and beyond that, what the Bible calls our earned inheritance. Now, I didn't get into any of the specifics of that, but I'm sure you've read in your Bible about the crowns, right, the different crowns. Those will be passed out at the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, there's, we'll go through some of these scriptures in a minute when we read about the judgment seat of Christ. By the way, turn to Hosea chapter 6. Hosea chapter 6, right after Daniel.
All you're finding that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, Lord, I just thank you for the day. I thank you for each and every saint that's in this room this morning, Lord. I pray, Lord, that they would be sensitive to your preaching and teaching this morning, Lord, and that's what I'm asking you, to set me aside, but use me as your mouthpiece to convey this message, Lord, that they might understand it and then be obedient and faithful to perform the doing of it to what extent that they need to. So, Lord, I ask that uh, you'll bless the hearers and help us to be doers of your word as well. Ask all this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So the earned rewards could be not just crowns, but uh, that verses I mentioned in Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.12, I think it says, if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. You know, the parable of the pounds is a very transparent parable, Luke 19. And we didn't have you turn there, but I hope most of you know that parable. It's all about the potential rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, one of which is, well, let me tell you the parable. This certain nobleman gives to each of his uh, ten servants a single pound, tells them to occupy till he returns. He comes back after many days. This one servant comes up to him and says, I've obtained, uh, I've gained ten pounds. And he says, well, thou faithful servant, I'm going to allow you to have authority over ten cities. The other guy comes back. I turned the one into five. He says, I'm going to give you authority over five cities. That's one of the potential rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, to rule and reign over cities out into the millennium and out into eternity. Uh, the one servant comes back with the single pound he was given. The, the, the nobleman said, hey, that's not what I had in mind. Now that parable, very transparent, is about believers. Another thing you got immediately upon salvation is some kind of spiritual gift, maybe more than one. It could be leadership, teaching, helps, whatever. And God wants you to allow him to develop that spiritual gift in yourself so that you can use it specifically to bring him glory in the specific, unique ways he created you to do so. So, that's the earned inheritance. Different from what you get with just salvation. And you have to earn it by serving, suffering, sacrificing, ultimately by being sanctified. Okay? That's how we fulfill the potential of Revelation 4.11, to please our Savior. All right. Let's look at Isaiah. Uh, before I turn to Isaiah, I want to um, expose this chart up here. Uh, and this is just a precursor to a chart I want to show you. This is going to be super simple. I've got this blue timeline up here, and it's supposed to represent the uh, man's history on planet Earth. Okay, so let's start back here. If you can see it, about 4,000 B.C., God created Adam in the Garden of Eden. 3,000 B.C., 2,000 B.C., right here. Right before that, maybe 500 years or so in round numbers. That was Noah's flood. Okay, about 2450, thereabouts. Uh, 1,000 B.C., that was King David reigned during that time. I'm slightly prejudiced to that name, so I bring him up when I can. Uh, 1,000, right in here, right after, in about 30 to 33 A.D., Jesus Christ is crucified on a cross at Calvary. And then we're up here, 2,000 A.D., we're right in here, just past that line, just a breadth past it. I bring this up because if you're familiar with Genesis the book of Genesis, the creative week, those first few chapters. Uh, it talks about how God created everything in six days and rested on the seventh day. And then you add that with some information we get in the New Testament. What the Bible says, with God, a day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is as a day. So you look at the creative week, what do we know that God created everything in six days and rested on the seventh day? It's a picture of man's history on planet Earth where man will be working for about 6,000 years and we're right at that precipice right now. And then the seventh 1,000-year period is what we call the Sabbath rest or the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's with that context, I'm going to show you a chart that really drills down on this specific area of time right here. But before we do that, because some of you maybe don't understand that concept, 
And when you're reading something like Hosea 6, I'm talking about the concept as the day is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. So Hosea 6, 1, this is the nation of Israel talking, really pleading with the Lord probably. Come and let us return uh, unto the Lord. They're talking amongst themselves, I guess. For he hath torn and he will heal us. He hath smitten and he will bind us up. After two days will he revive us. In the third day he will raise us up and we shall live in his sight. Now, really, the context is, is, is the verse that we didn't read, the verse before this, chapter 5, verse 15. This is the Lord speaking. He says, I will go and return to my place till they, the nation of Israel, till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face in their affliction, they will seek me early. He's saying, uh, till they acknowledge their offense. What was their offense? Crucifying the Messiah. And just rejecting him, they gave him time a few times after that to still repent of that, and they didn't. And uh, in their affliction, they will seek me early. What's that affliction? That's the great tribulation, which is in the near future. Okay? So when he says, after two days, when did they reject him? When did they create that offense? Right here, about 30 A.D. And we think that the church age is going to be two days or 2,000 years long, which means it's going to end potentially in 2030, you know, potentially, 2033, depending on when he's crucified, depending on our calendar, depending on all kinds of stuff. So I don't know exactly, but hey, if you don't realize it's coming and it's soon, it should be here in the lives of most, well, most of the people in this room are still alive, even if you don't get in any more car accidents and stuff like that. So uh, when you read about Matthew 17, and that's... uh, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on top of the Mount of Transfiguration. And Jesus Christ is transfigured before them. And God the Father speaks to him and says, to, to all of them, says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Bible, the, the beginning of Matthew 17 says, after six days, a picture of the second advent. The second advent is going to occur right before this seventh and final 1,000-year period of time. After six days, one, two, three, four, five, six. It's happening. It's going to be quick. I mentioned those things to make this Bible come more alive to you. So let's really look at this, this information uh, that's on this chart here. Pull this out a little bit. Okay, timeline on the bottom of the chart. It's green yellow, blue, and red. We've got the rapture of the church here, the great tribulation, the second advent, the millennial reign, and then eternity begins. Now, eternity, as we know it, the best we can know it, has no beginning and no end. So to draw it up there, when I say eternity begins, it really always has been and always will be. But I guess the best way to say it is this is when time, as we know it, no longer exists. Okay? But let's go through this. We know that the greatest doctrine in our King James Bible is when the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes back down and touches down on planet Earth to rule and reign during this Sabbath rest or this millennial reign, a thousand-year period of time. All right? That's called the Second Advent. We know that when he does come back, that signifies the end of a period of time on planet Earth we call the Great Tribulation. That's in yellow there. How long is that great tribulation? I don't know. I don't care. It could be three and a half, could be seven, could be more or less. I don't know for sure. But I bet we could all agree on what it is. What is it? It's a terrible time to be alive on planet Earth. Widespread famine, pestilence. uh, The weather is going to be off the charts bad. I'm talking about frequently occurring, devastating earthquakes hurricanes, tsunamis, tornadoes, everything destructive and devastating and ongoing almost all the time around the globe. Not only the physical calamity, one half of the population of planet Earth will be killed during that time. What sorrow and confusion and chaos is that going to create? The moral depravity, unlike it's ever been or ever will be. You thought it was bad back in the times of the days of Noah or Lot? Or right now, it's going to be even worse. And, of course, it's escalating to that point right now. 
there are going to be religious sacrifices, human sacrifices and religious services. That's going to be happening. There's going to be cannibalism. There's going to be all these creatures that are half man and maybe half machine and half man and half animal. I was just reading in, uh, in the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 9, about one of these creatures. It talks about how the bottomless pit will be opened up. This is, by the way, you want to read about the Great Tribulation? The central 16 chapters of the book of Revelation, that's all going to happen. It's not a picture, it's real. That's really going to happen. But you're not just there. It's in Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Lamentations, all throughout the Psalms. That, that tribulation is scattered throughout the whole Bible. But here's the creatures in, uh, the, that I just read in Revelation 9. The bottomless pit is opened up. Smoke comes out of that pit. And these, these locust-like animals come out of it. They're shaped like horses, but they have the faces of men, the teeth of lions. They have uh, wings, the hair of women, tails like unto scorpions, and they have the power to sting men. Not to kill them, just to torment them. Although the men that are stung by those scorpion-type locust creatures are going to wish they had died, and they won't because that's not the purpose of them getting stung. Instead, they're going to have that torment for five months, and they'll be praying that they could die, and they won't be able to die even. So, I mean, that's the type of thing that's really going to happen. Praise the Lord, if you're born again, you and I will not be here then. And that's what this green arrow is, the doctrine of the rapture. Paul said it's going to happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. He said, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, he said, the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now this tribulation, it's also called uh, the 70th week of Daniel's 70 weeks. It's referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble. It is specifically created by God to bring the nation of Israel, like we just read about in Hosea 6, put them under affliction, and he will draw them back to him. All right? That's just like I talked about with the wedging. Oftentimes that affliction you're going through is specifically for you and I to be drawn closer to the Lord. That's part of my personal testimony. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now have I kept thy word. That's from Psalm 119. I could go on and on about that, but I want to get off the subject. During the tribulation on planet Earth, which is right after the rapture and right before the second advent, up in the air somewhere is the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to read about that in a minute. Do not confuse that with a thousand years later at the end of the millennial reign is a great white throne judgment. The judgment seat of Christ, as we will read, is specifically for Christians, people that are born again during that church age. Okay? Nobody else is coming up there. Everybody else will come up at the great white throne. It will be primarily for lost people, but there will be people that get saved during uh, the tribulation, some of their offspring during the millennial reign. They will be judged as well at the great white throne judgment. Now, when Christ does come back, he says he's going to sit on a throne, a visible, physical, literal throne in the city of David in Jerusalem and rule and reign for a thousand years. Where you could actually, if you were alive during the millennial reign, uh, you would actually see him face-to-face. Face. It says even though Jesus Christ is right there, people will still reject him. Now, we know that this millennial reign is probably going to be like, probably a lot like it was in the Garden of Eden because we know the crops are going to go a lot faster. Animals will not be antagonistic one toward another or toward us. And so everything in that respect is going to be much easier. Uh, Satan will be bound so we don't have to, those people alive during that period of time don't have to have, have Satan to deal with. But we still have a sin nature. And all our descendants have that sin nature as well. So those people, there will be many of them that still reject the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a lot like heaven on earth, only heaven's a lot better. This is a lot like hell on earth, only hell is a lot worse. So whether it's the church age or under the law before the church age began or any of those times, people continually reject the Lord Jesus Christ. It's like he's showing us throughout these 6,000 years so far, of man's history on planet Earth, no matter what the situation, people reject God. Doesn't have to be that way. Okay, let's 
read about the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In the King James Bible, we have the phrase, the judgment seat of Christ, twice. We're not going to look in Romans 14.10. That's the other place it is. However, I have found over 30 verses that specifically refer to the judgment seat of Christ. They just don't use that terminology. We're going to read at least one of those in a, little, in a minute. But here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we'll pick it up in verse 10. The Bible says, now Paul, keep in mind, he's writing to believers. So when he says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ in verse 10, that's to believers. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. And then verse 11 he says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We'll get back to that in a minute, but listen, I hope you realize this. One of God's attributes, one of his positive attributes, is he's a great and terrible God. That's not the way you and I normally use the word terrible. But that's one of his positive attributes. Meaning, he is so probably physically huge and awesomely powerful, unfathomably powerful, that it is terrifying to a little tiny human being. The only, therefore, the terror of the Lord we persuade men. Paul said it this way when he wrote to the church of Philippi. He said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Again, not talking about getting saved. He's saying, lay hold on eternal life. He's saying, work out your own salvation. The days of your salvation have a sense of fear and trembling. Why? This is going to be terrifying to stand before an almighty God, your creator, your savior, and give an account as to what you've said, done, and thought since the days you got saved. Now, praise the Lord. If you know the Lord at all, you know he's a merciful God. But he's also a just and holy God. His justice demands payment. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. I mean, you just have to know what's going to happen. I mean, there's a great verse, I think it's in James, that says, he shall have judgment without mercy that has shown no mercy, something like that. In other words, the point being, you show mercy to people down here, and God will have mercy on you at the judgment seat of Christ. Amen. We got a mercy account. We got a joy account. We got some other accounts up there. Uh, I'm deviating. Uh, look in verse 1 in the same chapter. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, look up here, this is what you're looking at. We live in a body of clay. If your body of clay goes down into the ground and spends any time in there, this is exactly what's going to happen to it. It's going to dissolve. Just like Job said, Thy hands have made me and fashioned me together round about. Thou hast made me as a clay. Wilt thou bring me to dust again? If I took all this water off of the top of that clay and just set it outside, then a few days it would just be dust. It would just be scattered with the wind. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of a God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. If so, that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. So let's explore that naked and that terror a little bit more. Keep your thumb in Corinthians, but turn to the back of your Bible, Revelation chapter 3. Now, John is writing to seven churches in these first three chapters of the book of John. And those churches represent periods of church history. So let me draw this timeline. This is Jesus Christ being crucified on a cross at Calvary. And then John writes to seven churches. Each one of them represent a period of time. I'm trying to do this so they're unequal and they overlap a little. He wrote to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. All right? Each one of those churches represents a period of church history. We're only going to read about this seventh period of church history, the Laodicean church and what that represents. One of the interesting factors is that if you were to go back and look at the introduction to each of those seven churches, 
They also, the first six, talk about writing to a church at a place. So I think it was called the church in Ephesus, and then at Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, at Sardis, at Philadelphia. But when you get to the seventh church, it's not at a place anymore. It's a church of the Laodiceans, a very subtle thing. But the word Laodicean means people rights or civil rights. Now we know that the church age ends right like this. I've already diagrammed on that other diagram. Okay? But what is it about the Laodicean church? It's about the people's rights. It's about civil rights. And you put the word right behind or in front of something like gay rights. Well, that's a right. Right to choice. Oh, that's a right. No, the Bible says deny thyself. So technically, biblically, we don't have rights. Let's read about the Laodicean church. Before we get to that, look at verse uh, 11. He says, Behold, I come quickly, chapter 3. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. You know what's interesting? He didn't write that to the Laodicean church. He wrote it to the Philadelphian church. Why? Because this was a pretty good period of church history, probably from around 1600 to about 1870. Just, you know, in general. Why do I pick those dates? Because it was when the King James Bible came out and when the first perversion came out. But this was a great time of uh, revival, the Great Awakening, some people call it. I mean, that's when Finney toured around this New York, I guess, and he's, his, that's evidenced everywhere. Anyway, digressing again. Verse 14, let's read about the Laodicean age. Under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Verse 15, I know thy works that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. That is the mantra. That is a character trait of most quote-unquote Christians during the year two. Zero two two, okay. You and I, through no fault of our own, we live in the Laodicean age, but you and I do not have to be Laodicean Christians, okay. People in the Laodicean age think that because they've got all the material goods that they could hope for, even though they're all maxed out on a credit card or a mortgage or whatever, they think somehow all those earthly possessions are some kind of a sign of God's blessing on their life. And that's not true. I hope God has blessed you financially. And if he does, he does it for a reason. And that's so that you can help other people with that blessing. You can support this church with that blessing so that you can support missionaries with that blessing. That's why he blesses you. A lot of people, God is wise enough not to bless them financially because they can't handle it or couldn't handle it, and he knows that, and he's actually saving them from themselves. My God shall supply all your need, according to his riches and glory, by Christ Jesus. So he says, Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. (laughs) That's what God is looking at spiritually. You know, this is a picture. I told you this is clay just dug out of the ground. But it's a picture of a saved person who's no longer in the darkness and captivity of Satan's kingdom. But it's a picture of a saved, unsanctified person. You see, because God can't do much with this. He can do much with this if it yields to him. But a lot of people have not yielded to the sanctification process. And thereby, when God's looking down on a lot of church sanctuaries this morning across the globe, this is what he's seeing in a lot of the pews. Saved people, but unprocessed people that are not really pleasing God to any degree past their salvation. Listen, it's as simple. If God saved you just so you could spend eternity in heaven with him, then why are you still here? You're here because he's got something for you to do, specifically to please him. He can get pleasure from your lives in all kinds of ways. It doesn't have to be something dramatic or noble or, you know, worthy of fame or anything. You could be a good grandparent or a good mother or a good, good child. 
to your parents. You can be, you know, I don't care how old or young you are, you can be pleasing God with every decision you make throughout your days. And then he's got other things for you to do, too. I mean, he wants you to be a bold witness. He wants you to open your mouth and allow the Holy Spirit inside of you to speak through you. And that's going to happen if you spend a lot of time in his words, but I'm really getting ahead of myself. It says in verse 18, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich. And what else? White raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. Now, if I could just wave a magic wand that would make you from this point forward, every time you read that word shame, or thought the word shame, or heard the word shame, Think about the judgment seat of Christ. It would probably help you in your spiritual walk. Because there is a potential at a minimum to stand before him one day and be naked and ashamed. You know, we oftentimes sing uh, this song, Over a Hilltop, I Got a Mansion, something like that. I don't know how it goes, but God didn't say he promised us a mansion. He said, in my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. If you and I are going to have a mansion when we get to heaven one day, it's because we allowed God to build our mansion as we were allowing him to use us during the days of our salvation. Your mansion in heaven, your clothing like we just read, that stuff is earned. You're going to get to heaven if you're born again. You're going to get a glorified body. You know, you're going to get all those things we talked about in Sunday school. But the degree of your clothing, the degree of your mansion, whether or not you get crowns, whether or not you're chosen to rule and reign, and there could be all kinds of things that God hasn't even mentioned in our Bible. I don't know. But I know this. I do not want to stand before my Creator, my Savior one day, and be naked and ashamed. Let's go back to Corinthians. This time, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is, be, this is one of those areas that uh, uh, doesn't mention the judgment seat of Christ, but it's probably the best series of verses about the judgment seat of Christ. I think as a believer, my recommendation to you is when you're reading about the rapture, you should be thinking, yeah, right after that is the judgment seat of Christ. When you're reading about the tribulation, you should be thinking, yeah, during that tribulation up in the air somewhere is the judgment seat of Christ. When you're reading about the second advent, you should be thinking right before that, judgment seat of Christ. It would do us well to be focusing on that judgment seat of Christ. If you're saved, that is the most important doctrine coming up for you and I. 1 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 11. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, those are three valuable things, wood, hay, stubble, those are three dead things with almost no value. Every man's work shall be made manifest for the day. In my Bible, I circled the word day. It is a specific reference to the judgment seat of Christ, and you know that by the context. The day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. To get the picture, your works are going to go through that spiritual fire as either wood, hay, stubble, three dead things, or gold, silver, precious stones, three valuable things. Now, wood, hay, stubble, when they go through a fire, they turn into ashes. Gold, silver, precious stones, those things are purified by fire. Verse 14, if any, work, any man's work abide which he had built thereupon, that's the gold, silver, precious stones, he shall receive a reward. That's referring to your earned inheritance, a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, that's the wood, hay, stubble, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire. Do you get the difference? See, gold, silver, precious stones don't burn in a fire. Wood, hay, stubble burn. Okay? That's the difference. Uh, if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Now, we have a picture of that. And that picture would be Abraham's nephew, Lot. You may recall that Lot, when God, those angels pulled God out of Sodom and Gomorrah, and then God rained down that fire and brimstone, it destroyed every earthly possession that Lot had. 
So he's a picture for you and I as someone saved yet so is by fire. Now Lot did not live during the church age, so he will not appear at the judgment seat of Christ. All right? But he's a type of someone saved yet so is by fire. God doesn't want that for you. He doesn't want it for any of his children. Okay. That's the judgment seat of Christ. We're moving on with our outline. How about the clay process? I hope you have a, an idea of why you should prepare. <laughs> you don't want to be naked and ashamed. I know you don't. You don't want that for anybody you care about either. So, and I can't emphasize it enough. I don't know how many times I say it. God will do the heavy lifting. We just have to make ourselves available for his uses. You know, it's like when you say, Paul preached the gospel. I did those three missionary journeys. And I know God did that through Paul because Paul made himself available. You can say that the apostles did the same miracles that Jesus Christ did. Because he did. Even Christ said they will do greater miracles than he did. But they didn't do those miracles. God did those miracles through the apostles because the apostles made themselves available to God. Now I'm su suggesting that you and I are going to do those same things that the apostles did. But my point is, God wants to use you, and all you have to do is make yourself available. When you hand a gospel tract to somebody from that rack out there, because you've gone ahead and put one in your pocket or your purse or your billfold, or your wallet, or your glove compartment, and you had it so you could hand it out, then once you pass that over, you let God take care of the results. That's not up to you. Your part is just to be that vessel yielded to do what he leads you to do. Well, let's look at the eight stages the potter puts a clay through. Probably no mystery to any of you. The first thing a potter has to do if he's going to make something out of clay, he's got to dig the clay out of the ground. Pretty, pretty simple. Now, if the clay... I told you it's the single most abundant solid material on the planet. If the clay that you've just dug out of the ground is close to the ground, the surface, and it's been raining, then that clay is going to be all sticky because that's one of the characteristics of clay. However, if uh, the clay is going to go through a process, even if it is moist or sticky when you dig it out of the ground, the clay has to be dried out. So I just brought you dried out clay. Now. This is a bunch of stuff, mostly clay, but paper, there's a branch, there's leaves, there's stones, there's all kinds of stuff in here. By the way, this is just the ground, and we know animals travel over the ground. Some of them fly over the ground. Some of those things, sometimes those animals and fowls deposit things. It's not all clay, all right? I'm not going to say it. It's contaminated. So what does the potter do? Let's say by volume he's got a, a gallon of this mixture, mostly clay. He'll take that one gallon and pour it into five gallons of water. All right? Now, that five-gallon bucket of water, you're going to see the branches, the paper, the leaves. Those float on top. Those are removed. Stones that aren't going to dissolve or break down, those go right to the bottom. Those are removed. Then the potter takes all that mixture that's still in that bucket. He pours it into another bucket, but this time he puts a very fine mesh screen between the two buckets. The only thing that goes through that fine mesh screen is the very fine particles of clay and all that water. What does he end up with? He ends up with this very thing right here. Pure clay, the whole bunch of water on top of it. Now, if you weren't here in Sunday school, I created this by taking a little vessel like that and just putting it in here. And what took about 15 minutes, and that clay just totally dissolved. It's at the bottom of this thing. This water was crystal clear when I put it in. Right now, it's still cloudy. Why is that? Because there's still some very fine particles of clay that have not sunk to the bottom. They're so fine. If I let this clay sit for another 24 hours without it moving at all, that water would probably be perfectly clean. I'm going to pour off this excess water. And what I've got is just pure clay, but obviously way too soft. So what does the potter do? The potter takes that soft, pure clay, and he has to dry it out. This is the third stage of the clay process. I would dry that out by taking it outside on a nice sunny day like this, pouring it on a cement sidewalk. I'd let the wind blow on it and the sun beat on it. Pretty soon that big pancake of clay would start to get dried out. I'd actually wait till it got a little too dry on the surface, knowing that the interior of that pancake would still be way too soft. So at just the right time, I'd start to tear parts of that pancake apart. I'd bring them in my 
clay studio, and I take some of those pieces of pancake. Keep in mind some of the outer surfaces would be a little too hard, some of the inner surfaces a little too soft, and then I would wedge that clay, and I demonstrated that in Sunday school. The potter uses the sharp wire, pounds the clay down on the wedging table, and then he uses this motion. It's very similar to what a baker does when he kneads dough. And it's called the wedging process. And what this does is it homogenizes the clay. And it also gets rid of any of those air pockets. And a very important part of the process is using this wire to help make it free of air pockets and homogenized. Once the clay has been wedged, that's here, he needs to rest it. That's the fourth stage. What's that all about? I've got to explain to you, clay molecules, if you saw them under a microscope, are long, skinny rectangles. And each one of those long, skinny rectangles has thousands of ball bearings of water that allow those, those molecules to slide one on another. So you could take clay, and you could squeeze it together. I could do this on a potter's wheel by shaping something, or I can just use my fingers you can make this almost paper thin. And then you can take that paper thin thing of clay and actually fold it over and it'll actually stay there and harden. Now you know you can't do that with sugar or salt or flour or sand or all kinds of stuff that you can't do it with. You can do it with clay, not just because of the, by pushing and pulling kind of at the same time. And you just kind of exaggerates that by bringing it way up. That's clay that's almost centered. This is clay that's not centered at all. <laughs> okay. I've got an electric wheel. I've got a foot pedal that's attached to the motor. And I just can use my foot to make this go fast or slow. When clay is centered, you know it's centered because the potter can touch that spinning clay on any part of that spinning clay and his hand is not bouncing around. That's how you know it's centered. Now this wheel goes round and round, round and round, round and round. It's like planet Earth going round and round, round and round. And day after day, night after night, God is allowing every single circumstance in your life to shape you and mold you. And we just think, oh, that's just insignificant. God's got nothing to do with that. Yeah, you'd be surprised. Every circumstance, if you're day after day, night after your night, God is allowing those circumstances and your decisions to shape you and mold you. As the potter centers the clay, the first thing he does is it's called dropping the well. He tries to stop right before he gets to the very bottom. And then he opens the floor only. And then he begins to pull up the sides. The idea of shaping something on a potter's wheel is called throwing. And I don't know why you call it throwing unless it's because you throw the clay on the wheel. Maybe you've got some insight into that, brother. Nobody's ever given me any insight. We call it throwing. Some potters call it turning. I like throwing. Uh, usually if I meet a potter, I ask him, do you throw? Because some potters earn their living making pottery, but they never use a potter's wheel. They don't throw. So that's throwing is called shaping on the wheel. This specific part of shaping right here is called pulling. And that's where you squeeze the clay together from the inside and outside and make that thick wall thinner. And at the same time, you're making it taller. When I was in school, someone had given me a 50-pound bag of pure clay, nothing but clay, no water in it. It looked like a bag of Portland cement. I mixed water into it, mixed it up in a big mixing uh, machine. I think it was like some bakery they had. And then uh, I took it over to the table, wedged it, I put it on the wheel. I never rested it. So I was shaping something on the potter's wheel, and I was starting back down here at the bottom, and I pressed in from the outside, and out from the inside, and I started lifting like this and pulling. And I got to about here, and the clay just came apart. Part of it was spinning around on the wheel, and the other part I was holding in my hand still. Why? That clay had no plasticity, no stretchability. It had no strength because it has never been rested. I did not allow bacteria to grow in that freshly formulated clay. I think there's a wonderful picture here of... Um, we know that we're not of the world, but we do live in the world. And sometimes when that world is coming against us, 
I think it's a nice picture to understand that the master potter has a supporting hand on the inside of your vessel when that world is coming against you from the outside. Some of us oftentimes are dealing with internal struggles like pride or rebellion or unforgiveness or could be all kinds of things, bitterness. Isn't it nice to know that the master potter has a supporting hand on the outside? By the way, sometimes when he needs that extra support, he'll put both hands out there. He knows what we need and and when we need it and how much we need. Once the potter has shaped the vessel according to his liking, he puts it in a kiln, which is nothing more than a big oven. Mine were electric, but they can be gas ovens or propane ovens or wood-fueled iron ovens or anything. What that does is that kiln is fired. We call it the low firing, and that kiln will fire that piece of pottery to about 20 excuse me, to about 1,800 degrees. And during that firing, the clay becomes hard. And more importantly, it becomes waterproof. I'm going to stop on that. This is a vessel that's gone through the fire. It's hard. It's waterproof. It will not get soft no matter how long it's in that water, whether it's for a minute or an hour or a year. That's very important because the seventh stage is to take that low-fired piece of pottery and put a protective coating on it. We call that the glaze coat. And that glaze coat is nothing more than the chemicals that form glass when they, after they're put on and it's refired. So how do you apply the glaze coat? I took this particular vessel, it was just like this at one point, and I took it over to a bucket of glaze. It's all these chemicals, primarily silica and some other things, that are suspended in a very thin bucket of water. And I mean, when I say thin, the mixture is very thin. Think of the thickness of skim milk, very thin, very watery. And I just submerge the whole thing in and pull it out. And instantly, this coating of reddish-brown glaze is over the entire vessel. If I allow it to go inside, which I did, then I just pour it out like that to get rid of that. That covered the entire thing. Then I took it over to another vat of glaze. This one was a grayish color and I dipped it in that vat of glaze. I couldn't have done that if those, if the things had not been fired, because this would have just started to dissolve and would have weakened and cracked. Once the glaze coat has been applied, the vessel goes back into the kiln. This time it's fired to a temperature of about 2200 degrees, and that's when the glaze turns to glass on the outside. Now, This piece I had to recently remake because it broke on me. (laughs) And it kind of ended up a little bigger than the others. But you can see that these two, although this one's sitting up a little on something, these two are virtually the exact same height. Matter of fact, all three of these were exactly the same height. Okay? But you can see, if you're close enough to see, this one has shrunken. Why? Because in the extreme heat of that kiln at 2,200 degrees, at the very extreme end of that 2,200 degree temperature, the pores of the vessel are actually opening up. The glaze, which is becoming molten, is starting to soak into those pores of the glaze, and then the kiln starts to cool down. And what I'm saying is the glaze, not only does the, the molecules come closer together because they've shrunk back, but the glaze itself is no longer just on the surface. It's literally bonded into the pores of the vessel. And that's very important because high-fire pottery If you ever have occasion to buy a piece of high-fired stoneware pottery, you'll find it's very chip-resistant, unlike low-fire pottery that you would get at Walmart or someplace like that, which is easy to chip. 
this has been bonded to the surface. So, clay is dug out. Can't use it the way it is. It has to be processed. Potter uses a lot of water to soften and cleanse it. He then dries it out and homogenizes it by wedging it. The wedged clay is then rested, very important part of the process. It's shaped on the potter's wheel, allowed to dry in the air, but this is very fragile and susceptible to dissolving if it gets wet. So the potter goes through a low firing, makes it hard and waterproof. The protective coating is put on it, and then that protective coating is turned to be serviceable when the glaze turns to glass during the high firing. So when we get back tonight, I am going to show you, let me say it this way, the sanctification process, if you want to look ahead, it's listed, you don't go there now, but it's listed in 2 Peter 1, chapter, verses 5 through 8. Peter said, add to your faith virtue, and the virtue knowledge, and then temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity. The sanctification process is an eight-stage process, and it ends in charity. What I'm going to show you tonight, how this is a picture right here of faith. And this is a picture of virtue and knowledge and temperance and patience and godliness and brotherly kindness. And this is a picture of charity. And when you see that, you're going to understand the sanctification process like you've never understood it before. And by understanding it, my prayer is that you will cooperate with it and embrace it and allow God to use you to your fullest extent to bring him the pleasure that he created you to bring him. And you know what the benefit of that is? It says, I think it's at 1 Thessalonians, uh, probably chapter 1, I don't know, I can't even tell you where it is, but something about if we do those things, we will abound more and more. You know, when you seek to please God, you will abound more and more. It's, it's a win-win. I told you it took me 30 years to surrender to the Lord. And I'm, I'm you know, that's a shameful thing to have to admit. Uh, right at that 30-year mark, and really the 28 years before that, I'd had my pottery studio two years by then. After about that second year having that pottery studio, and I, believe me, I loved it from day one. And I loved it just as much 30 years later, if not more. Because after 30 years, I became very proficient at making pottery and didn't have to work very hard at it, even though I loved it. So I'm saying this. I thought I was leaving. I was, I was experiencing my heart's desire. You know, but the heart's deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked. Uh, you can't trust your heart. When I, the Lord sold that store for us when I was a second-year student at PBI. And when that store was sold, I didn't even know there had been a weight on my shoulders all those years. Because if you're self-employed or if you're in full-time ministry, you know what I'm talking about. But I have never regretted for one second that thing that I thought, wow, this thing's it's running so smoothly. I get to do what I want to do all day, every day, as much as I want to do it. And I get paid for it. There's nothing like being in the center of God's will. And he's the one that knows your heart's desire, not us. So allow God to show you his perfect will for your life. I know for a certainty it involves the sanctification process because that's how we bring him the pleasure to our fullest potential. Amen, Pastor.